Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On a recent episode of this podcast, we discussed a case brought by a Jane Doe in a federal court in Northern California, focused on Facebook's role in the genocide in Myanmar, in which tens of thousands of Rohingya people were killed, raped, and brutalized, and hundreds of thousands were forced to flee. That case, which seeks $150 billion in damages, cites the work of UN human rights experts that chronicled Facebook's role in spreading hate speech there, concluding that it played a determining role in the violence. Ultimately, Facebook's own investigation into the situation also found fault with the company's practices and made various recommendations for how it should develop a human rights strategy to protect against such things from happening again. Today we're going to hear from a refugee from the violence who is with other Rohingya refugees in a camp in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, as well as three human rights advocates. And we'll learn about another complaint filed by 16 Rohingya youth to Ireland's Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, that argues that Facebook violated the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises by allowing its platform to be used to incite violence against them and their community. The remedy sought by these refugees is for Facebook to divest from a portion of its 2017 profits and provide remediation for their community in the form of educational activities and facilities in Cox's Bazaar. Please note that the connection to Cox's Bazaar was not perfect. If you have any trouble making out a word here or there, you can refer to the transcript at the Tech Policy Press website. Now, let's get into the discussion. My name's Ava Lee, and I lead the Digital Threats to Democracy campaign at Global Witness. My name is Antonia Staats, and I'm a campaign director at Avaaz. Hi, my name is James Douglas, and I, I'm a lawyer with Victim Advocates International, and I, alongside my colleague Claire Brown, are taking the lead on the, the Facebook advocacy. My name is Mong Seydullah. I am a refugee. I am a Rohingya refugee, now living in Cox's Bazar refugee camp. And I'm an executive director working for Rohingya Student Network, and also now we are in a part of the case, taking against Facebook. Saidella, maybe we'll start with you. And can you explain to me what's happened that brought you into this case and led you to where you are at the moment? To explain what happened, like why we are taking this case, how we are taking, where we are now, to understand all these things, uh, we must go a little bit to our earlier situation. So... Basically, uh, it's a historical record that Rohingya people uh, have been living in Arkan, in Rakhine State in Myanmar, together with all other ethnic groups living there peacefully. We, we do have really a good time. Uh, we, we have peace. We live there peacefully. But unfortunately, uh, the mind of some uh, very you know, narrow-minded people changed against Rohingya there are some extremist politicians. We also collected who, who are those peoples. Then they started uh, hating Rohingya people. It's their personal uh, intentions because they do not want Rohingya people live in Myanmar. Then they started organizing campaigns, anti-Rohingya campaigns. But we were living uh, peacefully with all other people living there, just except those people. But they took help of the Facebook platform. They exploited their uh, intentions, like their motives, 
by you know sharing different kind of false news, false information, rumors against Rohingya peoples. Like these Rohingya peoples are very bad, and like if the peoples, if these Muslim people lives here continuously in our country, then soon we will uh, we will see our president with beer like that. They posted a different kind of like this hair species on Facebook against Rohingya. Then all other people who were good to us also changed their minds because every day they were seeing uh, the post on Facebook against us, but the Facebook failed to remove those content against uh, us. Those they were, uh, you know, uh, spreading hate for, for the Rohingya. And finally, all the people changed their minds. Uh, they, they were hating us on online, like they were seen on Facebook, but uh, it turned to offline life. They start hating us even in our offline life. Finally, we had left the country. Now we are uh, surviving here in refugee life in Cox's Bazaar. So we noticed that uh, that, that was happening uh, all because of the contributions of Facebook, but we didn't know that uh, we can go like this, like we can take like this a step against Facebook because uh, we were thinking like uh, the Facebook is a really big organizations are really powerful. We are nothing in front of the Facebook, so maybe there is no any way to do, or no any way to, to, to go against Facebook to go for our own rights. Finally, uh, we meet a uh, big team advocate internationals and all uh, like some other international experts and we explained them like uh, our situation we explained them how we suffer what we suffer then you know we are also understanding a step by step the the, the, the situation like the uh, the systems like we can go to fight for our justice we can go to to fight for for, for the facebook that like get help to violate our human rights in myanmar then we have started uh, going uh, to take this case as the victim advocate international uh, you know showed us the way that there is uh, a way to to go against facebook that is called the oecd so we have started about oecd uh, especially i i read all the guidelines all the informations uh, contained in the uh, document of oecd so i read all those uh, information and i also realized that uh, yes uh, there is a way to do something so we have started doing that and we already submitted our case to to the national contact point uh, in Ireland of the OECD. So we explained there like how we suffered what the Facebook uh, did with us, and uh, we demanded there like the Facebook engage with us, and they, they they must pay us. They must pay us as the compensations of what it did to us, and we are asking the Facebook to pay us for one million dollar as. Uh, you know they earn more than billion dollars by uh, abusing us by contributing their business in in, in the human rights violation we suffered so we are asking very few we are asking those money to rebuild our life to to make education programs in the camp so the the cases are still on process um, we are now waiting to hear from, uh, back from from the ncp this is the the time we are waiting still to hear from ncp Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I may come back to you with a, a couple of additional questions. So um, keep an ear. But James, um, can you tell me, uh, you know, maybe picking up from there, how you got involved and what is the status of the case right now and the jurisdiction? The Victim Advocates International got involved 
Firstly, we were not pursuing legal or quasi-judicial grievance mechanisms. We were assisting the victims we represent within Cox's Bazaar to engage directly with Facebook in, uh, in, in discussions about how they could make life better in the camp, given that they had acknowledged that they had done too little uh, to prevent the violence that happened in 2017. So it all started out with very um, kind of polite, email exchanges with um, Miranda Sissons, who is the director of human rights with Facebook. We were listening to what the, was really needed in the camps and uh, education was something that many groups had pointed, what, which was missing like the curriculum that followed what they would have learned in Rakhine State in Myanmar. So um, we asked Facebook if, you know, if they would be willing to kind of fund these type of educational projects. Um, and they said that it, that it was something that they would consider. So after doing this, a group of students and youth groups within the camp, they spent three months devising an education proposal that which would have cost Facebook a total of uh, $1 million. They spent three months developing this proposal and they submitted it to Facebook. Facebook um, responded three months later saying that they do not typically engage in philanthropic activities and if they do it has to have more of a link direct link to their products such as um, digital empowerment or internet literacy so it was kind of at this stage where we start stop our, our focus around asking for what Facebook coined or deemed was philanthropy to asking for a remedy because Facebook contributed to the harms that was, were suffered in 2017, they owe, they're not, it's not philanthropy, but they owe the Rohingya uh, remediation and uh, in the form of an education. Um, so that's kind of what brought us to this step. And I had kind of previously worked with these OECD complaints mechanisms before I kind of started looking into what was publicly available and doing my research on whether or not Facebook's behavior, actions and omissions around the 2017 operations uh, would constitute a breach of the OECD guidelines, which is um, guidelines that every state party to the OECD is bound to implement. And these OECD guidelines, they incorporate the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights. And the reason why, when I was looking into kind of the corporate structure around Facebook, um, I saw like that Ireland was very central in their international operations. It, it's uh, called their international headquarters, their Dublin office. The content moderators for 2017 were all located here. The data uh, for Myanmar is located in is located and stored in the Dublin offices. And the contracts for the, the Tatmadaw and the military are governed under Irish law. So for all of biz, uh, Facebook's operations outside the US and Canada, it's their Dublin office that takes care of it, which is why we decided to file before the OECD national contact point in Ireland and not the United States. Let me just come to you, uh, Ava. How did Global Witness get involved in this? And Antonia, I'll come to you as well next. So... You know, we were very much kind of looking on the sidelines as Global Witness, really shocked to hear that Facebook were refusing to meet this, you know, wholly reasonable demand of the, the group of Rohingya that were just asking for a contribution to their education who were living in this refugee camp. 
and and yeah, utterly appalled that Facebook just refused to do that and, and were willing to fight against them. Um, but from our perspective at Global Witness, we do investigations and we also advocate for systemic change of the big tech platforms within our digital threats campaign. Um, and so we were really interested when we started to see the action that was taking place that, that James was leading with victim advocates and national um, and others what we could do to investigate how much Facebook had really changed since the kind of the beginning of the genocide and the beginning of this violence, because they've said a lot about how much they've invested in their ability to detect Burmese language hate speech, which is what a lot of this hate speech was. Um, they've really invested in content moderation, both from an automated perspective and in terms of real people who have those language um, and jurisdictional skills. And unfortunately, when we started investigating it, we found that even with all of this supposed investment, they're still not able to detect really, really extreme hate speech that exists in real life. It was all examples that we found. And can you tell us about how you did the test? Tell us a little bit about the methodology and what you did. We uh, collected a range of hate speech, real life hate speech um, in Burmese language against Rohingya. These were all examples from a United Nations independent international fact-finding mission on Myanmar um, in their report to the Human Rights Council. We selected eight examples that were really, really horrible. We chose not to publish them in their um, entirety, but other journalists that reported on it did. And we created ads. So we wanted to be able to test Facebook's ability to detect the language without actually posting any of this content and continuing to spread the hate that had already been spread. So we chose to, to post ads, which had to be approved by Facebook, and then which we could obviously delete before they were published. And um, so we found eight examples um, in the end, and we posted all of them, and all eight were approved by Facebook and were, were ready for publication before we pulled them. So we were really shocked. We, we didn't think that this would be the case. They were already examples of hate speech that presumably Facebook would have known about. It's in a very you know, widely available uh, publication. And yeah, as I said, really, really nasty stuff. And pretty terrifying that four years after Facebook admitted that it played a role in inciting the violence that led to the genocide, it still wasn't able to detect such extreme hate speech in Burmese when it, it says that it's invested so much in being able to do so. Antonia, how did Avaz get involved? So our starting point in a way was what happens online doesn't stay online. We've already heard from Sayyidullah about his experience and what story after story over the past years has shown us is that social media platforms can cause real offline harm, can really wreak havoc in, in people's lives. And I think the, the Myanmar case here is a, is, a, is a really extreme example. The Biden administration not too long ago ruled that the violence in Myanmar amounted to genocide. And let's also not forget that Facebook itself admitted the hate speech that was left to flourish on its platform played a role in inciting that, that violence. We've also recently heard from Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, who mentioned, for example, that engagement-based ranking was literally fanning ethnic violence in places like, like Ethiopia. So I think there's also an important aspect around marginalized communities, communities in the global south, communities in places and countries that maybe aren't the highest priority 
for uh, a company like Facebook, really facing the sharp edge of some of these harmful consequences. That's a kind of pretty horrendous situation as it is. What we're beginning to see is people fighting back and sort of addressing this kind of harm, whether that's the OECD case in Ireland, whether it's the Rohingya lawsuits in, in the US and, uh, and in the UK, and that there is a sort of budding movement of tech harm survivors who, whose experiences, even though they may be really different in terms of uh, real life effects on their lives, are sort of tied together by a connection of something harmful happening online that has an impact offline. And, you know, just to sort of broaden that scope out as well, I really think there is a sort of thread running from the Rohingya's horrendous situation to doctors not being able to do their job because their medical advice gets drowned out by health misinformation that's just going viral on social media to parents who have lost children to online challenges that those children have encountered on on social media to Muslims in Assam in India who are facing um, hate speech and threats to their lives. And that list goes goes on and on and on. And so we had the great privilege of gathering some testimony from Saidullah and some of his fellow complainants and turning them into into a short film to really help bring bring these really important voices that very often don't feature that prominently in discussions about how to regulate big tech, uh, what needs to change, and really sort of bring these important testimonies to the conversation as well. James, let me just come back to you around OECD. And uh, can you just give us a sense of the timeline on this? And I, I assume these types of inquiries aren't exactly hasty, they're not quick. What should we expect over the next few months about the conversation? And what has Facebook said? Um, so the first thing to note about OEC, the OECD process is it's 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 a quasi-judicial grievance mechanism, so it's different to litigation. And it only works insofar as both parties, the complainants and the respondent, who in this case is Meta and Facebook, are on board. So um, typically uh, it is estimated that the whole process should take around a year. Um, the initial assessment phase is supposed to be around three months. That's when the the NCP makes a determination as to whether or not our complaints or, or our allegations are bona fide. And then the, the, the NCP will try to bring the complainants and Facebook together for uh, good offices, which is essentially like a, a mediation stage. So the resolution will be determined through negotiations between our complainants and Facebook. Um, as you said, you know, these things are very complicated and uh, usually take much longer than what is stipulated in the procedural guidelines and the, the practice documents. So we are still in that initial assessment phase um, where the, we are expecting the NCP to make a determination to proceed to the next stage. We can't really speak any specifically about any of the discussions that we're we've had during this phase, but we all I can say is that we're still in the initial assessment phase and we're hoping to receive a response from Facebook at some point. 
Let me ask you uh, this, just in terms of looking at this, do you, I mean, you've, you've clearly essentially run a test that suggests that Facebook's technical systems are perhaps not up to snuff with regard to looking at, you know, Burmese language content, you know, especially advertising, but is there a, um, any sense that you have of the kind of human, you know, focus they have now on these matters? Do you, they seem to have more of an organization either in the region or in the country? Do you feel like they've made substantial investments or that you're seeing the results of those substantial, of those investments? Some of that actually relates specifically to what we've alleged in the complaint. Not only did we allege that Facebook failed to conduct due diligence around its business operations before entering the telecommunications market in Myanmar, we've also uh, said that their human rights policy, which they submitted last year, does not meet human rights standards. Um, And this is because uh, specifically it it places too much emphasis on content moderation um, and it doesn't actually address what Antonia alluded to earlier. It's this engagement-based algorithms that amplify hate speech and there's no due diligence. Facebook has not done due diligence around that, around uh, the algorithms in and of themselves. I don't think... If you hire content, if you hire more content moderators, you're only going to ca- capture a fraction of what's being posted. And, and this is something that Francis Haugen has said explicitly. It's just like it's one tiny part. And without this broader systemic due diligence around this whole algorithmic data driven business model, it's not going to have much of an impact. It also has a, a huge amount of harm on the content moderators who are who suffer awful psychological um, trauma from, from having to moderate images of beheadings and genocide on, on, uh, in real time. So I'm, I think that Facebook have used the language of human rights, but in a way that they've always kind of controlled the narrative. They had, they've admitted some, acknowledged some wrongdoing, but not to the extent that would make them owning responsibility so that they would actually have to provide a remedy. They've just said that they did not do enough at the time. And we think it goes a lot deeper than just not hiring enough content moderators who were attuned to Burmese language and culture. They had two at the time. And as Ava has pointed out, like, you know, they've invested more money in Myanmar than any other country because of what happened in 2017. And it's still not working. Just to totally echo what James said, I think that it's clear that they need to do so much more on the algorithmically driven hate that we see across the platform and across countries around the world. I would say, though, that kind of content moderation is important, too. And, you know, well, many of us are fortunate to live in English language speaking countries where actually what they do in content moderation is worlds apart from what they're doing for the rest of the world that isn't English language speaking and so we put it to Facebook and they responded not to us in fact they didn't respond to us but Associated Press wrote an article about our investigation and they did respond to them and said they have invested heavily in Burmese language technology and built a team of Burmese speakers whose work is informed by feedback from both experts, civil society organisations, and specifically the UN fact-finding mission on Myanmar, which was exactly where we took our examples from. But our investigation demonstrated that that just clearly isn't enough. 
And I think another key issue with this is the sheer lack of transparency about what they're doing in any of these jurisdictions. You know, it's incredulous that they only had two at that time. But the reality is that, you know, we don't really know how many Burmese language speaking content moderators they have. We don't really know what they've done on this technology beyond some very, very top line reports. Elsewhere in countries where we're seeing incitement to violence and, and real life violence happening on the streets right now, places like Ethiopia, places like India, where there's a, a real risk of genocide happening there too. Again, there's zero transparency with, with what the platforms are doing in relation to content moderation. And so while I absolutely agree with James that a core part of the problem is with what the algorithms are doing, until that's completely fixed, and even when it is completely fixed, if we can ever envisage this utopia ahead of us, there, there will need to be content moderation too. And the people who are doing that need to have their workers' rights protected. They need to not be completely traumatized by what they're seeing. They need to be paid properly. But they also need to be there and we need to know how many people they are. They are doing this work so that we can really be sure that the platforms are taking something incredibly serious, as seriously as it needs to be taken. Sidella, I think maybe some of my listeners may not understand the role that Facebook has played there in Myanmar for people. What is its importance as a platform? When the, all that things were happening in Myanmar, like when some people were uh, spreading the hate speeches against Rohingya and some other people are following those uh, posts and, you know, making its uh, reactions impractical. Uh, at that time, Rohingya people were even not legally allowed to use uh, smartphones. But just very few people like me used a smartphone. Uh, I also had used a smartphone and used a Facebook there. So basically, uh, all the posts I saw against uh, Rohingya on the Facebook platform was, uh, you know, uh, writing in Burmese because uh, the people uh, in Myanmar, like, you know, read the uh, information which are writing in Burmese more than uh, which are in English because, you know, as you can also see, like, uh, there is a, a person, we can, uh, we know him as the name, Wiratu. Uh, he's a Burmese uh, religious leader and a monk. Uh, he's also a politician. So if now, if we, we, we check his page, like he already have a page, still, uh, he's still continuously spreading his, you know, head species against uh, uh, Muslim religions, against Rohingya like that. So... Uh, that kind of influentials uh, terrorist people uh, in Myanmar uh, usually use uh, the language Burmese they, on their post so that everyone, every people in, in Myanmar can easily understand those posts because uh, almost uh, all the people uh, who are living uh, in the northern side in Rakhine like read the Burmese more. You know, also, uh, I already made uh, some report to, to the Facebook against some like side desk those posts but the, the facebook uh, even didn't respond me in some post and sometimes they respond me like uh, the post that i reported is not against community standard uh, that's making me something like maybe the facebook is not understanding even the language Burmese language uh, like this, i i thought because they, they were saying that that post is not going against community standard but i i'm in my in my eyes i'm seeing that it's going it's definitely going against community standard, but uh, the the Facebook is not understanding that they were not removing that, that those posts. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we were very few people, so I just report some one or two posts 
when all those things were happening in Myanmar, and I unfortunately even didn't have, uh, become success to even remove one post by by the Facebook. But now after coming here in in the camps, uh, I reported to i think several posts and i i saw like one or two posts have been already you know down to have been removed by, by the facebook so the the, the, the language issue was also something like uh, i i see the, the the way i explain now so have you ever talked to anybody verbally at facebook have you ever met anyone from facebook uh, actually, I physically, like, I barely do not talk with anyone uh, from the Facebook, but, uh, you know, as I already mentioned, like, I just reported to some post and, you know, after coming in Bangladesh, uh, like, we sent a letter to, to the Facebook, but, uh, you know, they didn't respond, but uh, we, we had a meeting uh, with the Merenda. I think you already know Miranda, uh, the human rights uh, director. Facebook. Uh, we already had uh, a meeting, but we didn't get any uh, satisfactory uh, feedback from from Facebook. Then we sent another second letter to to the Facebook, and it say like if diplomatically rejected uh, our request, then we have started you know taking this step. Uh, before taking this step, we, we were not, uh, uh, you know, saying the Facebook that we will be taking a case against Facebook. But you know, we were asking uh, them like uh, the Facebook contributed uh, its business uh, in the human rights violation we suffered. So uh, we are just ha- asking for some help to rebuild our life. But, but the Facebook refused. They rejected. Finally, now we are taking the, this step uh, because there is also, uh, you know, the process. There is also. Or mechanism that we can make the Facebook call in account for uh, their, you know, their their, their uh, violations to Rohingya. If Mark Zuckerberg were to listen to this podcast, what would you hope he would understand about your situation there? Yes, uh, if the Mark Zuckerberg, you know, is uh, listening now to my voice, or he already joined this podcast, like he's listening to our voice. Uh, he, he he must be very ashamed. Like uh, I, you know, if I I see him, if I suppose uh, he's not in front of me, I'm saying him something. But you know, I'll be very ashamed to him because uh, he himself being like a very big man. Like uh, he's uh, uh, you know he he had a very big organizations. Uh, he's leading the world. He, he, he's making his dream come true, but he no care to the dreams of other peoples because his dream is destroying the dream of other people. He's not caring, caring that. So in my view, he's not a, a big man. He's a big man. I, I, can, I will say him like that because, you know, he himself is understanding. I'm a very big one. I, I, I'm, you know, controlling this world. Now the world is on my hand. But yes, it is true that the wall is uh, on on his hand. But it is us. We are doing. We are. We are. We are supporting it to him. That's why the the wall is in his hand. But if we we stand together, we we get our hand in hand. Then he will be nothing. He he will you know he will he will have to show his hand to all of us that there is nothing in his hand. We are we all are his power. We all make him the big one. But now. He's not caring to uh, suffer, to, to make us suffer. 
I just want to place this in the context of everything we've that's come out about Facebook uh, in the Facebook files since the end of last year. And it's it's like it's not as though Facebook Facebook was brought it was brought to it its attention multiple times that its platform was being used to incite hatred against the Rohingya specifically since on numerous occasions and it completely fails to act. So it's I want to just place this in the broader context of Facebook knowing and failing to act. And we hear a lot of um, news stories about how around Facebook and Instagram and, and, and the impact it's having on teenage girls, which is all very important. But I really think that I'd just like to reemphasize that what happened to the Rohingya in 2017, the escalation of violence is really the worst thing that has happened uh, as a result of Facebook's lack of due diligence on its business model. So I think our investigation has added to the evidence that Facebook can't regulate itself um, and everything that is going on with this complaint um, and with the broader cases against Facebook in relation to the Rohingya genocide really speak to that. And we've seen some really uh, incredible groundbreaking moves in Brussels um, in relation to the Digital Services Act, which for the first time is bringing much, much more regulation than we've ever seen before to these big tech companies so that Facebook would have to do a proper risk assessment in the way that its algorithm may be promoting hate in the way that it was in this context. Um, and that's great. It's really important. But now we need to see more countries follow suit. In particular, we really need to see this type of regulation in the US. And we need to see the Digital Services Act properly upheld and, and it starts to have an impact. So that's what Global Witness will be looking at over the next few years. I think I have two main points to finish up. One, to any lawmakers, any social media uh, platform employees listening, um, I think there's a really simple ask to listen to people like Sayedullah, people whose lives have been really harmed uh, by some of the things happening online and kind of pay attention so that experiences like the one that we just heard about where uh, Saidullah, you know, reports hate speech that's targeting his, his community in a context of genocidal violence just sort of goes nowhere. And then secondly, yes, in Europe, we've just seen some really important moves around creating a framework for tackling tech harm with the Digital Services Act that will force Facebook, Google, TikTok to study the amount of harm through their platforms and kind of be audited on how they have assessed these risks. Um, and the, the comparison that I really like is in a way um, to a kind of Paris Agreement. So for um, you know, CO2 and pollution, we can, we can think of this harmful content as polluting our information environment. And uh, in the DSA, we see a sort of Paris agreement for the internet. And we need kind of transparency on what harm is actually happening, what the platforms are doing to address that harm, and then, you know, access to some of the data. So organizations like Global Witness, like Avaaz, like many others who have been doing excellent research uh, in these past uh, years, you know, don't have to sort of like scrabble around uh, for, for some of that data. So we've obviously, for understandable reasons, all spoken a lot about Facebook on this call. Um, but the reality is this is happening across a number of the big tech platforms and none of them are doing enough. Um, and we need to see really systemic change across all of them 
say that the most egregious harms like genocide don't continue to be amplified and, and encouraged um, by the way that these algorithms work. But also just so our democracies are no longer kind of really toxified and, and hate isn't spreading in the same huge way that it is right now so that we can we can start to see a much more progressive politics that brings lots of people together and, and helps us to face the huge challenges that we're definitely going to have in the next 10 years in relation to the climate emergency. You know, often these discussions around tech harms are are, are put in the context of a very technical language. But as Sayadula has shown us today, there's like a real human impact to, to and real life consequences. 750,000 Rohingya whose lives were upended and are now languishing in refugee camps in Coxa Bazaar without an education. I mean, at the very least, you know, there's there has to be some sort of obligation to to remediate that as well, as as well as as fixing the business model going forward, which is very important. We also need to see concrete uh, remediation for those who have already been impacted by the harm. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.